And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I would like to start uh, this podcast with a sincere apology. Uh, I think 2019 is is uh, destined to be the most important year uh, regarding the work of the foundation and trying to help both first-time investors as well as those who are close to or in retirement. But with all the projects we have going, uh, what is being sacrificed because we're we're very lean, lean and not too mean, um, but we we just aren't getting to as many questions and answer uh, responses in the newsletter. Uh, nor here on the, on these podcasts. But let me just ever so briefly tell you what's coming. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll understand uh, uh, if we don't respond as, as you think we should to a comment or a question. I've uh, taken on more uh, live presentations um, this year than in the past. At the same time as I'm experimenting uh, with ways to to, to be able to um, minimize the light of uh, presentations uh, where I have to do a lot of traveling. But I am traveling this year. We're going down to Santa Barbara to uh, make a presentation uh, in that area. It won't actually be in Santa Barbara, but uh, close to it uh, in April. Uh, by the way, all of these are listed in the latest newsletter, and we'll include a, a link uh, to the newsletter uh, here with uh, the podcast description. Then we'll be going to uh, in May to Madison uh, and Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, uh, two different presentations there. Uh, by the way, uh, maybe one of the most important uh, presentations I will ever make, and hopefully it will be recorded in some fashion, will come in Madison when I'm going to spend an evening with uh, two young ladies, one 13 and the other 15, uh, talking about their financial future. That's going to be fun. Uh, I then uh, will be in June in Los Angeles doing an AAII presentation there. Uh, I'll be sharing a three-hour presentation with uh, Craig Israelson, uh, one of the best uh, teachers uh, about asset allocation and, uh, and all the same things that we're focused on uh, that I've ever watched work. And I, I hope that if you're in the L.A. area that you'll uh, uh, come uh, take, take in this wonderful Saturday morning. Again, this is all described in the newsletter. But at the same time as I'm doing that, oh, oh, I forgot a biggie here. I'll be in Orlando. I'm so happy to be invited again to the uh, AAII uh, National Conference. It'll be in Orlando in October. That's, uh, uh, I think, the 25th through the 27th. And uh, we'll be getting the Chris uh, Pedersen and uh, Daryl Balls and myself. We'll be getting some new material, hopefully, uh, life-changing material uh, ready uh, for that presentation. Uh, And then we're working on the new book, Uh, the the book that is um, devoted to the two funds for life, as well as the $12 million investment decisions or investment lessons. Um, And beyond that, uh, the other commitment I've made, and this one is very important to me is in October, I'll be speaking remotely uh, to the Charlotte AAII group uh, for, uh, I'll have an hour and a half presentation and 30 minutes uh, Q&A. And that's exciting to me because I'll be able to make that presentation and it will be live uh, on October 12th from Bainbridge. And so I am uh, excited to see how that works, because if it does work, it means that uh, uh, I might be able to do that with high school classes and uh, other AAII groups that I would not otherwise get to. Uh, We're also working on a 50-minute piece 
that is uh, being produced by the Washington State CPA Society, and it will be all about uh, the Target Date Fund, what we call America's number one uh, retirement investment, and it will be uh, kind of a, it will be a combination of the basics of a target date fund. What makes a good one? Uh, what are some of the things to to, to look for in uh, in building your your target date portfolio? And we will have uh, uh, a par- a portion of that presentation will be dedicated to the two funds uh, for life strategy. And that's not all. We, we also have some work I might be doing with the, uh, hopefully, with the uh, Seattle Study Group, a group that uh, uh, nationally works with dentists. And, and so I'm hoping to do some video work for them. I just uh, uh, made a couple of videos uh, and addressed their organization in Amelia, uh, on Amelia Island in Florida uh, just uh, in the past weeks. Oh, and I guess I, I should not overlook another one of the highlights coming up, and that is uh, on May 20, I'll be in Bellingham to, uh, to address graduating seniors. Uh, not every one of them, but probably, hopefully, a couple hundred, and uh, trying to change their life in an hour and a half. Uh, so I'm quite excited. And if there are some of you in the Bellingham area uh, that would like to attend that presentation, uh, that just get a hold of me, Paul at paulmerriman.com, and uh, I'll figure a way to to uh, to get you in. And that's going to for me. That's just a a, a, pure, a pure hour and a half of joy. I really love this opportunity to to share with these young people the the steps they should be taking as they enter the workforce. Their first four hundred one k, their first real opportunity to save some. Uh, meaningful money. Well, all of this, uh, all of this is taking time. And, uh, oh my, I did forget. In Bell- in Bainbridge, uh, in April, uh, I'll be doing three workshops there. Again, they'll be in the information in the newsletter. Uh, one for accumulators, uh, one for people close to retirement uh, or in retirement, uh, and that will be not only investing, but about distributions. And then a third one uh, that will be uh, about estate planning and gifting and multi-generational uh, investing. A whole bunch of topics. Uh, we'll have a panel of people. Uh, and they'll all know more about estate planning than I do. Uh, but I'll be there to throw my uh, couple of cents worth in and look forward to that. That is being sponsored by uh, cooperatively with the Bainbridge uh, Community Foundation and, uh, and our foundation. So I hope those of you who are listening on, on uh, Bainbridge, maybe even in Seattle, will uh, make arrangements to come join us uh, for one or all three of those presentations. Anyway, we're busy. And here I am making this scene in, in, in San Miguel de Allende. Uh, I had to feel really good about it yesterday as I was talking to people back in the Northwest, where at least in one area they had nine inches of snow yesterday. And uh, that conversation was had while we were sitting outside as the sun was going down in our shirt sleeves, and uh, I don't know, maybe it was 65 degrees. Boy, do I love it down here uh, in, in the winter, and I, I know a lot of you have mentioned that that uh, you visited as well. Well, enough about what's going on. I, I just hope that some of this work filters through and changes uh, changes your life. I, I, I will, um, as a, a, this is not a, a Q&A on, in this particular case, I want to talk about something I saw from this uh, uh, publication that I subscribe to called By the Numbers. And every week I, I get a list of uh, 12 to 15 numbers that uh, the folks that put this out have found and they think would be interest, interesting to people in the financial education business. 
And in this particular issue, I, there was one that caught my eye. And that is, uh, and this information comes, the source is lend, L-E-N-D, E-D-U dot com. Uh, by the way, lendedu.com claims to have some 3 million followers. So that's, um, that's, that's serious business. And what they were talking about in, in this particular case was a, st- a survey they took of some 1,000 millennials. And I went to the, to the uh, actual study itself the survey, and they, they, they looked at uh, many different ways that young people spend money, how much they spend. Uh, young people, by the way, these are 22 to 37-year-olds, the, the millennial uh, group, and they looked at alcohol, uh, the, the amount of money spent on alcohol, on marijuana. Uh, by the way, I was really surprised uh, uh, whether the, sur- the people who took the survey were honest, but uh, it was a much smaller percentage of young people. Um, uh, maybe they're getting their marijuana free and they're not spending any money on marijuana. But, but the bottom line is, is that uh, there were lots of things that, that way more money was spent on, like, uh, like coffee and uh, like clothes. And, and it's quite a long list of, of regular things that we would have to buy to, uh, or would choose to buy uh, and. Uh, in our life, and and one of those things they commented on was 27% of these 1,000 millennials, um, and this was a survey taken last July, they spend more money on coffee each month uh, than what they set aside and invest monthly uh, for their uh, retirement. By the way, uh, there was one hopeful Number, even though a lot of these people are not saving any money at all, the average, the average amount of money being put aside each month uh, is uh, for retirement is $480. And that's almost $6,000 a year. It's not as much as I would hope that a a 37-year-old would be saving, but it's a lot more than a lot of 22-year-olds would be able to save. And that doesn't even count, I assume, uh, matches uh, on the 401k plans that would even take that, that number higher. But um, it, it, it just it looks so obvious to me as I looked at the money being spent on all the different things to, to support their lives that if they could just cut each one of those by 25% and or 20% and use that money uh, to to uh, save for the future that it would it would it would, t- it would be a huge step toward building what I think they need to have uh, in retirement and one more diversion before I take some questions uh, in this week's newsletter We'll have a link to it in the description of the uh, uh, of this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, we included a comparison of the ten best years between 1928 and 2018 uh, in terms of a- annual performance for the S and P 500 and the small cap value asset classes. And we also uh, show the worst returns, annual returns, between those two dates. The reason I wanted people to see that is that I, I, I talk so, so often about um, hoping for the best but preparing for the worst. And I also say that if you follow my advice, I absolutely guarantee that along the way you're going to lose money. If, if you're I'm talking about that portion of your portfolio that you have in equities. And we sometimes talk about the worst year, the worst three years, the worst 60-month period. In fact, that's in um, uh, many of our tables. But uh, I I, I concluded that if if you actually had to to go through uh, the, the best of times and the worst of times, by the way, I've 
yet to find anybody who complains about the best of times, but it's the worst of times. And to see the difference in both the best and the worst between two asset classes that are likely to be an important part of your retirement saving and investing. And in a few weeks, uh, I'll be talking about uh, an updated four-fund uh, equity asset class table that we have updated each year for some time. And in that four-fund, we, we show you the compound rate of return and and the, the, and the good and the bad times, some information there, and what would have happened over a 40-year period, a 15-year period, or uh, in this case now a 91-year period for the S&P 500 for large cap value, uh, for small cap blend and small cap value, and then show a couple of combinations of those asset classes. And here's what I know from looking back, just a little spoiler alert here. When we look back to 1928 and we, we, we put a $100 away in the S&P 500, uh, it compounds at uh, uh, 9.7%. Uh, and that $100 would have grown to about $500,000 over that 91-year period. Uh, had you put that $100 into uh, the uh, small cap value uh, asset class, and by the way, there are no expenses included in, these, in this particular study. These are just indexes. Uh, it would have grown to about 75 million dollars. Uh, and as we look at shorter periods of time, the, the numbers aren't so big, but the advantage to small cap value uh, is, is still uh, overwhelmingly in, in favor of small cap value. But I think if you check out this, comb this, this comparison of the S&P 500 and the small cap value asset classes during the best 10 years, and uh, the worst 10 years, uh, that you'll get a, a better sense of the good times and the bad times. And I, I hope you find it uh, meaningful in, 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 in the attempt to understand what is likely uh, to be a part of your financial future if you take positions in these different asset classes. And now to the Q&As. So this first one is actually a fairly long request, but here's the bottom line. Uh, I've corresponded with this particular investor over many years, and he is a buy-and-hold guy. But, like so many people, he's interested in trying some market timing. He doesn't need it, but he wants to try it. And so he's asking if I could... Uh, uh, recommend some information, some uh, ed educational materials, some books, some articles, or whatnot uh, to get into the market timing process. But first of all, just before I give the names of these books, because any book on market timing is going to make the process of investing look magic. It, it, it reduces risk because market timing in most cases where they're using trend-following systems, uh, they're going to be out of the market a fair amount of the time, and so they're at no risk when they're out of the market. Of course, they're at the risk of the market going up while you're sitting in cash, and that's a real risk over time, too. But it does reduce the overall volatility. There are other kinds of market timing that really don't reduce the volatility so much as they worked uh, what they what they call asset class rotation, where they look to be in whatever asset class is showing uh, the greatest relative strength. And there are all sorts of ways that people measure that. Uh, he does, the, the, the fellow who has sent the question says, I would consider taking maybe just a tenth of my portfolio and trying this tactic. I say one-tenth because if I make a mistake, I feel I have oversaved enough to justify trying this, perhaps even with pretend money just for fun. 
well, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's enticing the idea that if you if you could reduce your risk and even get the same return, that would be uh, certainly uh, a meaningful uh, uh, impact. So let me just first of all talk about two basic kinds of what I call market timing. Now, the first one and the book I'm going to to, to recommend that you take a look at. And by the way, um, Mark Holbert gave it, and, and Mark is uh, not a guy that says something uh, uh, just to help somebody else sell a book. He's uh, he's as straight a shooter as I know. In fact, as I do my series later this year of the top ten truth tellers. Certainly, Mark Holbrook will be one of the top 10. But he really gives a very strong recommendation uh, of Brian Livingston's book, Muscular Portfolios. Now, uh, it's a beautifully done book. It, it, um, and I've met with Brian several times. He's, uh, uh, he's a longtime AAII member and uh, a great educator, uh, and I think uh, I think anybody who reads that book is going to see that market timing can work and 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 work with a purely mechanical strategy. Uh, and I might I might add, I do not think anybody should be market timing uh, in, in in terms of the probability of success uh, without it being a, a purely mechanical approach. So, uh, uh, Brian Levinson's book, Muscular Portfolios, is one that I would certainly recommend. Uh, the other is um, Trend Following, and this is the fifth edition um, by a, um, a Michael Covell, I assume that's how it's pronounced, uh, and the subtitle is How to Make a Fortune in bull, bear, and black swan markets. Uh, th- this book also gets a lot of kudos. And, and the trend following, as I say, is a more conservative approach to timing. In fact, uh, in my own portfolio, and I've, I've disclosed this many times, and I should say our, because my it's, it's the, our retirement money and our money we're leaving to, to children and Charities that we are that are important to us. Um, we have about half of the money committed to timing strategies, and the other half purely to buy and hold. Now, the buy and hold is half in fixed income. So, see, there's that's being defensive, and the other half in uh, uh, in equities. But the equity asset classes, again, being defensive, are spread um, over about ten different big, small, value, growth, etc. Uh, asset classes. That's the way that we are defensive in the buy and hold. In the market timing, we have part of it in the, the trend following, using the kinds of systems that you'll see in uh, Couples' trend following book. <clears throat> and part of the a smaller percentage is invested using the kind of a strategy uh, the, the asset class rotation uh, that Brian Livingston writes about. And finally, uh, a percentage uh, that is invested in a combination of market timing and leverage under the umbrella of, uh, of a hedge fund that I helped start in 1995. I don't have anything to do with the running of it anymore. But um, no, but I still have um, a, a substantial percentage of uh, our investments in that particular fund. So uh, different levels of risk, different levels of defense and kinds of defense. But I think, and by the way, these two books are, are, are they're, they're not expensive, but they're not free. But if you want to get an education on, uh, on market timing, kind of the the breadth of the different ways that you might be able to uh, address it. Check out Brian Livingston's Muscular Portfolio uh, and uh, and Michael Covell's uh, Trend Following, uh, and the latest is the fifth edition. 
Uh, and, and that subtitle again is How to Make a Fortune in Bull, Bear, and Black Swan Markets. And again, I have to, I have to, to, to highlight the, the fact that when you look backwards and you do testing uh, in the past, you can always see things that would have worked out better. Remember, there is no risk in the past. This is also true uh, with, uh, with buy and hold strategies. As uh, all investors who were so happy uh, by the end of 1999, where for 25 years a pure buy and hold S&P 500 compounded at over 17%, a pure buy and hold a small cap value, 22%, it looked like investing was easy. Of course, that was followed with the S&P 500 by a gain of about less than 5.5% a year for, what, 18 years. So, um you can you always know what worked in the past, but I hope that that uh, those two books for those of you who really want to take on timing uh, are uh, are of of interest. But I but let me finish on this timing discussion. Uh, I've looked at timing inside and out. I've I've been uh, interested in timing since the mid '60s uh, when I had the good fortune of. Uh, of studying under a fellow in his 60s at that point. I think I was 22. Uh, I think his name was Max Person. And he was uh, out of uh, the Chicago area. Uh, he was going through the process of becoming a stockbroker at the same time as I was. I was just getting started in my career. He had owned a drug company, had sold it. This is the story I remember had stole, sold the drug company and was now kind of doing uh, something he really liked, and that was uh, getting involved in helping people with the stock market. So I studied uh, technical analysis uh, when I was in my early 20s uh, with Max uh, while I was going to school in New York uh, for, I think, three and a half months and uh, found... Uh, as so many people find market timing to be fascinating. I also found, there's, I, I, just as much as I know anything in this industry, I also know that market timing is probably appropriate for, for one out of a hundred uh, people. Uh, and, and, and here's the bottom line. The studies show that... Uh, the, the compound rate of return or the unit of return per unit of risk, let's just look at it that way, is about the same for a portfolio that is 50-50 stocks and bonds buy and hold uh, versus 70-30, 70% equities, 30% fixed income plus timing. So that if things go as expected, a buy and holder, can do just fine with 50-50 uh, stocks and bonds, and a timer would do about the same with about the same amount of risk with a 70-30. So no magic. It looks like magic. Buy and hold can look like magic in the past. So can timing look like magic in the past. My concern is that most people who start out and try timing fail. It isn't that the systems fail. It is that their discipline fails. And I have used as an example, and I stand by my case, that it is, it is easy to see how a person can lose weight using mechanical diets, just like mechanical market timing strategies. But so few people are able to conquer that challenge of dieting. And it isn't because the diets don't work. It's, it's, it's that person that we look at in the mirror in the morning that gets in our way of success. And that is more so the case with timing than it is with buy and hold, because buy and hold doesn't ask you to do anything. Just sit there. Market timing asks you to do something that sometimes is so very difficult. John writes, I'm 49 years of age with 15 years of service with Marathon." And plans to work until and plans to work until sixty-five. Would you suggest aggressive 
or moderate portfolio? Well, uh, let me first of all say that uh, I am not in the business of giving personal advice. In order to know whether it would be appropriate to be in the aggressive or the moderate strategies that uh, that we recommend uh, in four hundred one ks, I'd have to know a lot about your other investments and your uh, risk tolerance and some. And if, if I were in the business of giving personal advice, I'd want to know about your history of success um, and and failure uh, that you've had uh, in the investment process. So that part is very tricky. I do have, though, a better sense of giving advice in this kind of a situation than I might have before we got into this project uh, that we call Two Funds for Life. Because as many of you know, uh, that strategy, uh, first, it, it builds on a target date fund as, as the underlying uh, portfolio that's going to be there for the rest of, of your life. So at age 20, the formula says, because you multiply your age times 1.5, the formula says you should have 30% in a target date fund let's say, a 2060 target date fund, and the other 70% in either a small cap value if you want to be aggressive, a large cap value if you wanted to be conservative, but that you add a second fund to pick up value and to hopefully pick up small cap, and that you create, in essence, a glide path Uh, over that period from 20 to 60 plus, that there's a glide path that over time you reduce your exposure to risk, start adding some bonds when you're about uh, 40. uh, and, uh, And so it's not a matter of determining whether you're conservative or moderate or aggressive the way that we do in our portfolios that we've offered at, at, at Vanguard and Fidelity and other places. This is a, a different approach. So it may be that the best answer to John is for John to look at some glide paths uh, of, uh, of, of target date funds that would suggest retiring 15 years from now and see what they say about how much of your money should be in fixed income and how much of your money should be in equity. So, in theory, you could build using the equity recommendations that we make. You could. I'm not recommending it for the end individual sitting here in front of me. I'm talking generically. You could then use the the Vanguard target date glide path to know the amount of fixed income you have but use the equity approach that we would be recommending in the aggressive portfolio, which is all equity. So I'm not recommending an all equity portfolio. I'm saying that an all equity portfolio could be the portion that you devote to equities and you use a professionally developed glide path like the Vanguard uh, for determining how much you have in, uh, in, in fixed income. Because when you're 49 years old, uh, you probably should start from everything we, we, we know uh, about the, uh, the, the research that people are using to build glide paths, that there would be some fixed income in the portfolio. Here's a, um, a really a good question from a 23-year-old who works for Shell uh, and has uh, been following our work at uh, under the 401k plans that we've analyzed. We've done the Shell plan. I hope, certainly hope it's up to date. Uh, and this is an opportunity for me to apologize to those who have asked us to analyze uh, your 401k, that we are, we are behind in that area, uh, partly for the reasons I mentioned early in this, uh, in this podcast. But he does ask a good question. First, he says, I max my 401k and Roth IRA. Now, think about that. 23 years old, 
maxing his 401k and Roth IRA. He says, I plan to use the aggressive allocation, which by the way means the all equity, uh, in his uh, in both. So he then asks, uh, would you recommend following your shell portfolio or fidelity portfolio? He has the ability, evidently, within his uh, within his four hundred one k plan, to go to a self directed uh, investment strategy. Uh, Or he could use what we recommend those people who are using what Shell offers uh, everybody. And by the way, Shell has a pretty doggone good offering because uh, they do have the S&P 500, a large cap value, a small cap value. Uh, They do have a large cap international and emerging markets. Now, they are missing some good asset classes, um, large cap value internationally, uh, small cap blend, small cap value uh, internationally. Uh, So there are some holes, but I think people who go to the fidelity, uh, the the, the self-directed portion of their plan, they would be able to fill some of those holes maybe not all of them, and it would make a, a small difference over time. When I say a small difference, it might add an extra half a percent. Now, half a percent is not a small item. We've made this point many times over a lifetime, and we're talking about with a 23-year-old here, over a long lifetime, an extra half percent could generate an extra, certainly an extra one to two million dollars. Uh, depending on how long this person lives, depending on how much he lives on out of his, you know, takes out of his uh, his portfolio in retirement, probably not something he's thinking about right now. But over time, yes, those things uh, do have uh, an impact if you can add those other asset classes. But I think of, uh, I look at all these 401k plans, and we've looked at hundreds of them, uh, Shell has uh, one of the better offerings uh, to just to all of uh, the, the the basic uh, investors there uh, in their four hundred one k plan. Here's a terrific uh, question. Uh, it starts. I wanted to ask you a question. I am a longtime student of yours, so I do understand and love index funds for many reasons. My main issue with them that is always in the back of my mind is that although I own thousands of companies, many of them I would never, ever consider owning on an individual basis. What I mean by that is it's hard for me to pick money, to put money in something when I know that half the companies are just a ticking time bomb. Many of them have no sales growth, no increase in earnings per share, no cash flow, no increasing book value, very high long-term debt, negative return on equity, and negative return on invested capital. It seems so obvious that many of these companies are not going to be profitable in the long run. They have no competitive advantage, yet I am putting my hard-earned money into an index fund where half of these companies are, and I feel like it's just going to be a drag uh, on my portfolio. I think this is a a great question. Uh, And and the part that is so difficult is that it makes perfect common sense that we want to be in companies that have great potential, that have, uh, and he asks about you know, the, the possibility of getting companies that do have growing earnings and good cash flow and no debt, etc. Uh, this is the question of active versus passive. It is the question of growth versus value. It is the question of large versus small. 
And then it's the question of picking a few of the best in each asset class versus owning the whole asset class. And I'm not exactly sure where to start, but let's start with the work of uh, Dr. Bessembinder in his study uh, about uh, do stocks uh, make more than T-bills. And if you, we've talked about this before, but just as a reminder, uh, the academics looked at all of the companies going back to 1926, all public companies, big, small, value growth, etc. And they found that less than 4% of the companies generated most of that return that we know as the market return of around 10% a year. But if you only have the 96% plus, your return would be less than or about the same as T-bills, barely more than inflation. It was that 4% or a little less that made the difference. And what the academics conclude is if you want to make sure that you get the, the market return, which for most people is enough, uh, that you, the best probability of getting that is by owning all of the companies rather than getting rid of the dogs and trying to find that 4%. And, and so it is, uh, uh, it's obvious that not many people are able to pick that 4% because if they could and all they did was specialize in that 4%, their returns would probably be better than, and I don't know this number, but I'm intuitively saying probably 25 to 30%. I must, uh, I think it's important to add that when you see the list of the companies that in fact did make a ton of money for investors, that many of them made it a long time ago. Uh, General Motors is one of those companies. Well, you certainly couldn't say that that was one of the top 4% over the last 10 years. But if you look at the distributions of returns and dividends for investors, and whatever the company is worth today, uh, it, it was a huge payoff. So it, it, it wouldn't work, for example, to buy all of the companies that were heroes in the past because, unfortunately, you'd be picking up a lot of dogs today. And, and therein lies the challenge is that uh, we know that value do better historically value companies as a group uh, do better than growth. And those growth companies are oftentimes the ones that that our our reader here is is uh, uh, is is wanting to be in. And and I and I and I know that it it does make common sense. Get rid of the dogs. In fact, in fact, this was the this was the pitch from Wall Street, and all the people competing with index funds all these years. Why would you want to buy a portfolio that you know is going to have lots of companies that are going bankrupt, at least based on history? Lots of companies that have serious problems. Uh, when I was, uh, I, Jeff, my son Jeff and I have talked about what it was like being at a big conference in Las Vegas back in 1999, and now I've talked to Tom Cock. I think Eve Tom was there as well. And people were saying, why would you want a diversified portfolio with small companies and value companies when if you just owned the top 50 growth companies, that's all you needed for the future? And it turned out that for the next 19 years, you would have been better off owning that combination of small and value and international, etc. So it, it truly is one of the challenges for investors, and that is to say it's okay 
to own a bunch of dogs. Which, by the way, is a lot of what value companies are about. But that if I own those dogs and not try to pick the best, because in picking the best, I may end up with the worst and just pick them all, then the market is going to, if it looks like the past, going to pay a premium for having taken the risk of owning all of those dogs, if you want to look at it that way. So uh, I certainly uh, sympathize with people who say, why, why should I take an average return that includes, yes, some great companies, but really some, some terrible doggy companies that have high debt and have a negative return on equity and, 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 and they aren't increasing their book value and they don't have positive cash flow. It just doesn't feel right. And it is the, it, it, it's the, the reason that actively managed funds uh, attract a lot of money. Some people say, well, why would anybody buy actively managed funds when you know historically that the actively managed funds, most of them, all in the case of the S&P 500, according to the SPIVA report, 7.5% for the 15 years ending, I think, two thousand mid-2018. 7.5% of the actively managed funds were able to beat the benchmark. Well, if you want to be in the top 10% of all investors, it seems like, in, in fact, investing in, in the indexes makes more sense. Guarantees you're not going to be in the top 7.5%, at least over the last 15 years. So I, I understand but all the evidence says that that uh, hard work and smart people uh, are, are not likely to add value. The value is going to come from owning them all, having the discipline to save, and having the discipline to stay the course when things get very, very difficult. And that's one of the reasons we created this table that's just talked about a minute ago to show people in different asset classes how bad it can be. And, uh, and remember that I'm going to guess millions of people got caught up in the technology craze of the late 90s only to see at least the indexes, including many of the giants, companies, uh, technology companies, fall 80% and more. So uh, we all have our breaking points. And as we said in a recent article, that one of the things about index funds with their low expenses and their massive diversification is for most investors, they seem to create a sense of trust that will keep the investor in the process for the day when the market doesn't perform the way that it has in the past that led to the premiums that equities have provided uh, over fixed income. This is a this is a fascinating question. Um, this gentleman says on your last podcast on January second, at about eight minutes and twenty eight minutes, you mentioned retirees in their seventies and eighties probably do not need a small cap value. On a Best Advice article about small cap value dated June 23rd, 2018, you stated even retirees should strongly consider overweighting their portfolios at least to some extent with small cap value funds. My wife and I are in our mid-70s and have been using your Vanguard recommendations since we started our IRA rollover and brokerage accounts in 2008. Now I'm confused as to whether we should continue with small cap value or cut back. Can you comment again on having small cap value in a portfolio for a 77-year-old or older? We have no need for a legacy. Now, let me tell you uh, why it's difficult. 
for uh, those of us who are not giving uh, specific advice to somebody. Uh, first of all, that last comment just came in there. He didn't have to say that. I, I might not have never. I might not have ever known that. We have no need for a legacy. So that would be a consideration. Uh, how much they have? Have they oversaved? That would be a consideration. And by the way, even though they have no need for a legacy, I'm talking now, I, I suspect, about children. Oftentimes when I sit down, when I did sit down as an advisor and people would say, I, I, I don't have any need for this money after our death. We, there's nobody we have to take care of. But then you find out when you get to know them that there are th some things they care about a lot that when they think about, they could can have money somewhere that would continue to help those things they care about once they pass on. So I don't even necessarily accept we have no need for a legacy as the total as the total answer to the to the to, to what these people want their money to do after they're gone. But I'm never going to find out because that's not my business. I'm only in the business of trying to, to expose profitable kinds of equity asset classes and to try to give some direction on how to use those. So here I am talking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm telling people you don't need small cap value. Well, you, you don't. Um, a lot of people will be just fine if uh, they, in fact, I've, for a lot of widows in particular, people that I sensed after talking with them had no interest in doing anything that was very complex. And I, as I've talked about before, simply recommended a combination of Wellington and Wellesley at Vanguard, 50-50, which would leave them 50% equity, 50% fixed income, and no small cap. And those funds will be, I think, be fine for them. And by the way, these are people, not only are widows, but they have more money than they, than they need in terms of lasting for the rest of their life, at least from what I was told. So, no, you don't need small cap value. Uh, and by the way, when I say overweighting, uh, my wife, wife and I are way overweighted to small cap value. For uh, In my case, I'm 75. She's a bit younger, but not a whole lot. And, uh, and we have, in the equity portion of our buy and hold portion, we have about half the money in small cap, and more than half of that is in small cap value. But we've oversaved. And we're trying to build a portfolio that's going to be meaningful after we're gone. So it's appropriate for us, but it, for a lot of people, would not be necessary. I've spoken about how life-changing it was for me to talk to John Bogle one-on-one -on -one back in 2017, and he talked about how, how in many ways we make the process too complex for people who really aren't trying to build a, a, a major legacy, but just want it to be simple. And so the S&P 500 and some bonds, that's, that's enough. And of course, he wrote a book. The title was Enough. So do I believe that people in their 70s, it's appropriate to have small cap value? Well, okay, you get small cap value in a total market index, but you get so little of it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't move the needle one way or the other. It doesn't hurt you. Probably it doesn't help you, probably. In fact, we know the total market index, which has a little bit of small cap value, has approximately the same return as the S&P 500. That doesn't have any small cap value. So, when we talk about, in our 70s, having over an overweighting to small cap value, it would mean you could have 10% 
in your portfolio and you'd have an overweighting to small cap value. And anything above 10% would be an overweighting. The question is how far you want to go. And as I've said several times in these uh, these questions that I'm discussing today, that table we just produced can show you very clearly how bad small cap value could be, but it also shows you very clearly how bad the S&P 500 could be. And there's no reason to think that it's not going to happen in the future. The difference is this. For those of us in our mid-70s and, 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 uh, uh, and older, the odds are, just because of the number of years we have left to live, the odds are lower that we're going to face a 50, 60, 70% decline in equities than our grandchildren. Because the odds for them are very, very high. And the reason it happens will be something that we didn't ever even think about when we were putting together a list of things we were worried about causing the market to go down. So, so I, I, sometimes when I think about the portfolios we recommend and the things that we say, there are so many ways people could take it. And what would I like? I would like to have the opportunity to sit down and talk to every one of you one by one. But it's not going to happen. And I think about that uh, the two teenagers that I'm hoping I'm going to sit down with one-on-two in, uh, in May when I'm back in Madison, Wisconsin. And I think, what an opportunity to try to give some really great advice for the rest of their lives. Not that they'll remember it or not that they'll do it, but at least to offer it in a way that hopefully they'll never forget. That's, that's my hope. But I can't do that for you all one by one. And I know you all understand that. But having said that, I can see how confusing it might be when I say, well, you probably don't need small cap value. And then I say someplace else, whether it's a week before or a decade before, that small cap value is just fine. Well, let me take it one step further. There are a lot of people who don't need any equity at all. I remember, remember when Ross Perot was running for president. And uh, here's a guy who had a lot of money and a lot of knowledge uh, and chose to put all of his money in T-bills. Now, that was did not include the money he had invested in his own company. But he claimed that the rest of his money was in T-bills because that's all, that's all the risk he needed to take. So, um, and I think about Warren Buffett when he says that when he, he dies, his wife is going to get 90% in the S&P 500, and at least this is what he's recommending to the trustees. He'll be dead. He won't be able to cause it to happen from the way he stated it. There are trustees who will be doing this for him. But his recommendation is 90% S&P 500 and 10% T-bills. So we have Ross Perot at one end of the spectrum and Warren Buffett at the other. And both very smart people. Uh, so... Uh, I'm sorry that I probably confused a number of you. I will continue to work on being better and, and trying to define more carefully what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. But let me say that what I've done that I hope works is emphasize that whatever you do, you're going to lose money if it has anything to do with equities. And whatever you do, I mean, if you put all your money in short-term fixed income, because that's where the, the, the risk of loss is the smallest, if that's what you do, then you probably suffer one of the greatest bear markets in history due to inflation. And, and so we're facing risk wherever we turn. And so now... 
Francis, you've got to kind of sort through what I just said in response to your question. Uh, do me a favor. Email me, paul at paulmerriman.com, and tell me which way you decided to go. I look forward to reading that email. I look forward to sharing with you on a weekly basis. As I said early on here, we got a lot of stuff cooking this year, and I hope some of it falls to your bottom line. Thanks for listening, and uh, I hope you'll share this information with others. Thank you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.